Today is Tuesday, February 9th. The title for our devotional is Location. Remember, this week we're looking back to our Advent series. Yesterday, we briefly looked at the theology of the Incarnation. When we look at the Incarnation, we should, in some ways, see a model of how to do ministry. We are, after all, Christians, that is, little Christ. Like the old WWJD bracelets that reminded us to think of what Jesus would do in this or that ethical situation, when we think of how we should do ministry, we should pause and think, what would Jesus do? Or more accurately, what did Jesus do? One of the things we see is that Jesus came to us. He changed his location to come to us, to come to sinful earth to rescue sinners. John 1:14 again says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're focusing in on that first phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The astounding fact of the incarnation is that God chose to redeem the world by coming to dwell here in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He didn't remain on his throne in heaven, expecting humans to reach his standards of holiness. No, he humbled himself, came to not only visit with us for a moment, but to dwell among us and live among us. If that wasn't far enough that Jesus would leave the presence of the Father to come to dwell with us, in his ministry he also went to the spaces where sinners dwelt. One of the most famous examples is in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we see a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. It wasn't primarily within the walls of the temple or within the walls of the synagogues. It was out there, among the people. Jesus didn't just go and invite sinners to church. He didn't expect them to meet him on his turf. He went to where they were and talked to them there. Much of the church's outreach in the last 20 years in American culture has been focused on within the walls of the church inviting friends to church or hosting massive events to invite your unsaved friends to. Or they've revolved around doing churchy stuff in a different location, hosting church in a bar or in a park, or holding a crusade that is pretty much a church service in a stadium. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with those approaches approaches to outreach, but we all must admit that those approaches don't look a lot like what Jesus did in his ministry. Jesus' ministry looked like having dinner with a tax collector, and random run-ins on the street with a bleeding woman or a Roman centurion. Not that Jesus didn't go to church. He went to synagogue on Saturday and worshipped with the community. But his outreach was most notably among the sinners. So ours should be as well. For additional content, I've included a portion of an interview that Gabe Lyons did with John Tyson. John Tyson is a pastor of a church out in New York City. The title of the interview is The Burden is Light. Throughout the interview, John gives, I think, a good picture of what 
incarnational ministry should look like and how he changed his ministry philosophy. I think this interview will be not only challenging to us theoretically, but also really encouraging. So let's listen to this interview between John Tyson and Gabe Lines. I want to talk about something that often gets neglected that A.W. Tozer called the monstrous heresy. In our culture, most of our thoughts on heresy are primarily theological, but there is heresies in how we do ministry. This is what A.W. Tozer said. Religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a man dear to God. And this is the heresy that our worth in the kingdom of God is determined by our public outcomes and recognition in our desired spheres of Christian ministry. That's the heresy, that what we do is the thing that makes us valuable to God. Now, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. There's one scene that's one of my favorite scenes, where Jesus commissions the 72 and he sends them out ahead of him where he's going to minister. How many of you know the names of anybody who was a part of the 72? Nobody. Okay, so this is the B team. You could probably recite the name or one or two of the apostles, but the 72, that was just like this this lump. And you've got to imagine as they're picking the 72 that some of them are thinking, why are you choosing them? Don't choose James and John. They're going to call down fire and burn down a village. Why are you choosing Peter, Jesus? Choose me. They weren't chosen. They were lumped into this group called the 72. And Jesus gives them authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons. Do you imagine that feeling, not being able to do that, and then the Holy Spirit comes on you through Jesus' commission, and then you have the ability, and they go out, and it works. Now, you know in other parts of the Gospels, there's scenes where the apostles had problems casting out demons. And as the 72 have success in casting out the demons, you've got to imagine in their minds whether or not they thought, okay, now Jesus, maybe you want to sub out one of the 12 and pop me in, because I at least know what I'm doing in the demonic realm. You can imagine that, Perhaps some of them thought that. So they come back to Jesus, and this is what we read. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So their response when they come back is, we are successful in ministry. We have the anointing that is required to be fruitful. Yet much to their their surprise, rather than being encouraged by Jesus, Jesus actually gives them a subtle form of rebuke. Jesus says to them, you are rejoicing in the wrong things. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Why is this? Because their understanding of ministry was based on ministry outcomes. Have you ever asked the question, where do demons live? Demons are inside people. And rather than seeing people set free as their focus, they celebrated the power they had in ministry. Rather than coming back and saying, you should have seen the freedom on the faces of those delivered. They came back with a focus on the power that they had. And this is the root of the monstrous heresy. Brian Zahn says this, Satan never tempted Jesus with evil. Satan tempted Jesus with good. Satan enticed Jesus to go ahead and do good and bring it about by the most direct way possible. One of the things I noticed when I moved to the United States was that there was just an obsession with winning in ministry. And this actually manifests itself in the language that we use. Have you ever noticed how violent American language is? I'll give you an example. When someone's doing well, 
What do we normally say in response to that? How are they doing? Dude, they're killing it. They are killing it. How was the youth event? Crushed it. Crushed it. And our language is so violent. How was the youth event? We crushed it. We killed it. It's so violent. In Australia, how was the conference? Oh, it was quite good. Yeah, it did quite well. Someone's a multimillionaire. How are they doing? Well, they're, they're quite well taken care of. But Americans are obsessed with outcomes. They're obsessed with overcoming. They're obsessed with winning. But the problem with having that sort of a mentality is that when you're crushing it, somebody gets crushed. And when you're killing it, it's normally somebody who dies. And if we're not careful, it's the people in our ministry who are crushed and who die by our desire for power. And Jesus said, don't, don't rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in this. So he, he turns around and he says this instead, rejoice in the right things. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus had a vision of breaking what Raw calls the winner's script in their hearts. Rejoice that you're known in heaven, not that you're effective in distributing it on earth. You see, if you take that crushing it violent language and you insert it into a, a gospel narrative, it produces a distortion of the gospel. If Americans could, and I'm, I'm functionally American, okay, so this is self-critique. But if you were to write an American gospel, it would go something like this. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. So off to a very good start. So Jesus, born of a virgin. And in Jesus' teenage years, what does he do? He's in his father's house because he wants to be about his father's business. And then Jesus goes into ministry. And in ministry, he casts out demons. In ministry, he confronts the Pharisees. In ministry, he has philosophical debates in his moment of crisis like, what is truth? In his ministry, he's compassionate and he cares for his mother. In his ministry, he forgives his disciples. And then he conquers sin, Satan, death, and hell. And the grave cannot hold him. And he bursts forth from the tomb. And he rises up. And as he ascends to the Father, all of heaven applauses. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Except that's not how the gospels go at all. This is the order of the gospels. Jesus does basically nothing and lives in total obscurity for 30 years. At the start of his ministry, before any fruitfulness, he's baptized and the father says to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then from that deep sense of abiding intimacy, that sense of identity and value, Jesus is freed from the tyranny of outcomes to love and to serve and to give himself away. The blessing comes at the start of the ministry, not the end of the ministry, which means if we're going to be people who follow Jesus, we have to learn to live from blessing and not for blessing. Most of us love Matthew's ending of the gospel, Matthew 28. We love the great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And we love that missional activation based on delegated authority. But that's not my favorite ending of the gospel. My favorite ending of the gospel is actually Luke's account. And this is what we read in Luke 24. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Listen to this. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. 
See, I love this vision. I, I, I don't know how this happened. Jesus has his hands up, it says, and he's blessing the disciples. And I don't know if he sort of like just faded out as he ascended into another realm, like bless you, bless you, bless you. And he sort of ghosted out. I don't know if he ascended up and it's like, bless you, bless you, bless you. And then he just like disappeared into the sky. I don't know how this happened, but here's what I know. Their final image of Jesus Christ was with the risen Lord's hands raised above them, blessing them. And as they went on and lived out the truth of the gospel of Acts, they were then free not to try and please God and get his blessing. They knew in their last image of Jesus that they already had it. So they were free like Jesus was free to give his life away. See, the burden of American success in ministry is heavy. Comparison, competition, control, these things exhaust us. But the burden of Jesus, this burden is light. So my prayer as you leave Q this year is that this will be your image, that the Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will lift up his face upon you. He will turn his countenance towards you and that he will give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed listening to that talk from John Tyson. As it concluded our event, it was one of those moments where everybody felt kind of this breath of fresh air, this relief a little bit of release to just feel affirmed and encouraged in the way that John Tyson did. And so I've got John with me now. And John, I just want to kind of reflect with you on some of what you said in this talk and just kind of play it back a little bit and talk through a few of your quotes, a few of the ideas there. But I want to dig even deeper than that. You wrote an amazing book called The Burden is Light, where you really unpack these ideas. So just for those listening, if you're you listen to that talk and you felt something refreshing about it, you felt like, man, I'm hearing truth in a way that I haven't heard lately, I want you to go get The Burden is Light because that's where you're going to indeed be able to go much deeper into processing what might this look like for you. So John, welcome to the Q Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. I appreciate it. Well, one of your opening lines, you said the heresy is what we do is the thing that makes us valuable to God. Well, I, I think in many ways, it's the defining lie of the American church. Every way that we measure success in our culture, uh, particularly highlighted now by uh, social media, is about how big and large and popular and accomplished churches and pastors are. And so that can put the goal of ministry being large and influential rather than being Christ-like, loving the poor, being faithful where you are, enjoying intimacy with God. So it is fundamentally positioning the church against its mission, which is to serve God and to serve its neighbor. John, I mean, some people listening may know this, but our family was in New York City with you for many years when there was a couple of congregations being planted and just at the beginning stages of those congregations being nurtured. And I know your philosophy on ministry has always been really smaller is better. Like the smaller we can go with building a community and then move on and maybe start a new community that it's in those kind of tighter knit communities where we know one another and we're known that we're creating a setup that, that actually helps us avoid playing into this lie. What was it for you early on that helped you see that this is, this may be a better way? Well, I just want to put a qualifier in there, which is there are a lot of small churches that are totally dysfunctional. And there's a lot of large churches that embody the heart of God and are doing really beautiful work in the world. Um, the, the, in the book of Acts, when the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, it was birthed as a mega church. So numerically, so I'm not anti um, size or size dynamics, but I am pro 
organizing your life in deep, radical local community. And I think the thing that, which was really in many ways a gift from God, before I moved to New York, I was a youth and college pastor. And I saw our ministry grow from about 200 a week to 1400 a week in about two years. And it was just an absolute explosion. And uh, one night I was walking through the church. I just felt the Holy Spirit just convict me and rebuke me and say, yes, but you haven't discipled any of these people. And it was just one of those moments where I was, you know, I was 27, 28, sort of peak youth pastor, young adult influence, and realized that the fruit of a lot of that was was actually just hype. I was really good at creating large events people wanted to come to. I was not good at helping people follow Jesus in community. So I had in my heart basically a vision of discipleship, mission, and community, and then trying to build structures, practices, rhythms that actually facilitated that. So I went into New York and church planning with that in my heart. And I think if we get that vision in our ministry models, then it makes us focus on the right thing. So that's that's what had happened in my heart, a rebuke before I planted that sort of set that stuff in motion. You know, you mentioned a word there, you talked about hype. Yeah, that, that's a word that just kind of gets under my skin a little bit when we're talking about the church, the idea of hyping things up or trying to create appearances of success. I think it's driven so much by our media, visual culture. It's driven a lot in the social media space where essentially people want to come to successful things. So we feel the pressure in the church to try to pump up our things and show how successful they are and try to be the same type of personalities that are charismatic and winsome and gathering people. And yet you said an important point there. You walked into the room and realized, wait, we haven't discipled people, which is actually what the point of the church is. And so we find ourselves sometimes getting off track. I think what I've always respected about you, John, is you've always tried to look beyond that, not just to the future now, but you always look back historically. You and your family, you visited all kinds of early church locations. And and I, I should say early in the sense of in the last few hundred years, before well, we, we did, sort of we did go to Rome where well there you that, go so early, yeah okay so you you are in Rome so you're seeing the early church but you also looked at, at at events that have taken place over the last few hundred years that have led to revival and you were sitting in some of these places and I wonder what is it what what's your recent kind of turn on this one of the scenes that had marked me very very deeply and it was actually something we planned our trip around I had read a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, life by Marshall. And in it, he indicates a scene. Uh, Bonhoeffer, obviously, many people know, was the uh, pastor, seminary leader, activist, uh, faithful Christian uh, during World War II who resisted uh, the church's compromise in a partnership with Hitler. And he ran a seminary called Finkenwald, where he wrote his classic books on discipleship and life together. One of his friends came to visit him at this seminary because the, the life that they actually lived together was very disciplined and very intense. And his friend said to him, Dietrich, isn't this just too much? I mean, you're taking discipleship too seriously. So Bonhoeffer got into a boat with him and they rowed across uh, the river to a place where Hitler had an airport where he was landing planes and training his troops. And on the top of this hill, Bonhoeffer overlooking the airport contrasts where his seminary was. And he points to his seminary and he says, this must be stronger than that. We need to build a a disciplined community of people where the church is stronger than the influences of the world. And so I actually planned my trip around going in and standing and praying in that place. You know, people are so disillusioned with the church. They're so unimpressed with our large scale success in our own eyes. 
I think they actually are looking for a countercultural community of truth, of conviction, humility, integrity, love for the poor. And it just, I think, strengthened my resolve that this, what we're doing in the church, has to be stronger than that, which is the distortion and brokenness of the world. How do I, by the grace of God, help build a community here in New York that is stronger than the influences of the culture to form people out of the way of the world and into the way of Jesus? I think we're at a moment where there's such cultural disdain for Christianity light. You know, the world, I I often say uh, to our church, life is too hard for bad theology and mission requires, you know, sort of like a deep, deep commitment to Jesus because people are just, they have so many options. And I, I remember James K. Smith writing in the back of one of his books many years ago that if all the church does is mimic the world, it loses its capacity to transform people out of the world. So the church should be a counterformative society. So any level of change requires time and it requires commitment. The church tends to, I I believe that spiritual formation happens with breakthrough and process. It's these big moments, but then it's the normal everyday stuff. And we're a culture obsessed with the big stuff, which means in the everyday moments of life, we're rarely becoming who we want to be. So we took the tack of trying to form both of those things. You do need powerful encounters and the gathering of God's people, but it's really organizing your life around being known. It's around a shared um, convictions, shared ethical values, and then practices that you agree on and live in community that sort of give a texture and shape to your lives. And we found that people actually ached for that. So I think that's, um, something the church needs to recover is life together in community with practices and a countercultural vision. That's part of what I've heard from friends at CrossFit. They say, look, and of course I'm not at CrossFit. And if you could see my arms right now, you'd understand that that's a fact. I'm I'm not a CrossFit guy. (laughs) However, they love it because it's a sense of community. It's demanding their time, their schedule, commitment every day. And people are drawn to that. I think it's deep in our human heart. Like we want to be going for something, not just sort of lightly getting by. Lastly, John, this week I was really burdened to read a story about a pastor who was, I believe, 30 years old. I think it just highlights some of the pressure that you're talking about. It's very real that had taken over the church that his father had uh, led for many, many years. And when his father passed away, somewhat, I think somewhat suddenly, he was kind of thrust into being the lead pastor at this church and so tragically over the last week ended up committing suicide after only two years in this position and leaving behind a wife and three young children. And some of what he had described recently even to the congregation was just dealing with so much stress, anxiety, panic attacks, thinking he was dying. Like there's just so much happening at the mental level, at the emotional level, the spiritual level. And when you see something like that, I go back to, to really how you describe this in, the, in your talk. You said, look, the blessing comes at the start of a ministry, not at the end of the ministry. There's times when you need to live with intensity, but the danger is when a season becomes a lifestyle and you just get used to just grinding, going hard. I, I think pace of life is a very, very important issue. Practices like Sabbath, silence, solitude, intentionality with family, really understanding what gives you life, practicing it. A lot of that emotionally healthy stuff, I think, is just absolutely fundamental. But the second thing I, I would say as well is that we, we have to get our eyes on success in eternity. 
not success in the eyes of the world right now. Success is a, is a, is a myth. Success is if you get it, it can, it can corrupt you. If you get it, it's only temporary and you have to keep earning it. If you get it, your relationships get hurt because you think people only want you for who you are. It, it, it's dangerous business. Getting your eye on eternity in many ways provides the antidote. I, I remember that uh, line from, or that illustration that C.S. Lewis talks about uh, in The Great Divorce, where the young man is getting a tour of heaven and he bumps into a woman who's surrounded by young children who are singing to her and thanking her and praising her. And uh, the young man says to the guide, oh, who is she? She must be very important. The guide says, well, actually, on earth, she was nobody. She was just a local woman, but she loved well. But in heaven, she's significant. Mm. There's, there's people paying tremendous prices who are imprisoned around the world. There's people who have genuinely suffered for their faith. Yeah, the day we stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives and receive our praise from him, that has to be the voice we live for. reflection today, think about your approach to sharing the gospel of Jesus. Do you expect people to come to your space? Or do you regularly visit them in their space? Do you view your neighborhood as a mission field? How about your workplace or the places you frequent throughout your week? As a side note, there may be seasons of your life with Christ where you need to withdraw from culture, from those spaces especially if you sense yourself being more conformed by the culture than you are conforming it. If you're in one of those seasons, this is not meant to push you out of it prematurely. Seek the Spirit's guidance for when you should reach out to the world and when you need to withdraw.